Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Pratt Library. I'm Judy Cooper, the coordinator of public programs, and I'm glad to see that some of you brave souls came out this evening, came out of your air-conditioned homes. At least I hope your homes are air-conditioned. Um, and it's it's pretty comfortable here. Kesey, you can come up here and sit in the hot seat. Um, we're really pleased to uh, welcome Kesey Lehman, drove down from New York to be with us here tonight in Baltimore, and I wanted to just um, make one announcement. Our, uh, our newsletter is on the back table, and also some program flyers, and one of the things that's not in our newsletter is that on July 30th, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie will be here to talk about her new novel, Americana, and so I think that you might want to come back for that. And some of the other um, authors who are going to be here this this month, um, we're taking the month of August off, and then we have lots of exciting stuff lined up for September and October. You can find those on the Pratt Library website. Um, it's my pleasure to introduce to you uh, Dr. Lester Spence from Johns Hopkins University. He's a, a good friend of the Pratt Libraries, and he... He's a Facebook friend of mine, and I noticed one day on Facebook that he mentioned Kesey Lehman's name, and I, so, I, so I sent Lester a message and said, why don't you come down and, um, and meet Kesey Lehman and introduce him? So that's um, thanks to the wonders of Facebook that um, all these, these good things happen. So Lester, it's all yours. I want to thank uh, Judy for asking me. What she didn't say is it took a, about 30 seconds. As soon as she sent it, it was like 30 seconds. I'm like, okay, I'm on that. So Kesey and I are friends on Facebook, and when folks found out that Kesey was coming, you know, they were like, oh, my God, what do you do at a book report? You know, what do you do at a book reading? You know, what does the person who introduces you, what does he say? What's he supposed to do? Kesey, you remember what she said? Or what you said? Don't be boring. <laughs> so what I'm going to do is give a not-so-boring introduction and then let Kesey do his thing. I, um, I, hap- I read Long Division, I, but af- I read it after I had met Kesey virtually on Facebook. I first encountered Kesey through an essay that he wrote uh, for his forthcoming book of essays. I believe it's coming out in a month. Wow, next week. Oh, that's the dopeness. That's the hotness. I'm sorry. That's really, really cool. Um. How to Slowly Kill Yourself and Others, right? And I thought, and and everybody had sent this essay out. Everybody was like blurbing it on Facebook. I'm like, okay, let's see what's in here because I wasn't impressed, right? I saw everybody was sending this essay out. I'm like, okay, whatever, whatever, yes. I read it, and it was brilliant. It was absolutely brilliant in capturing a voice in capturing kind of a kind of a a, a southern a, a black southern American voice, and it was politically insightful, right? And then a couple of his of of my friends through a couple of my friends, I found out he was on Facebook. Uh, I friended him as soon as I found out, and we've had a running dialogue on a number of subjects. When his book finally came out, I read it, and the book is as brilliant as the essays are, right? Now. I grew up in Detroit, and that's what I tell everybody. I was born there. My grandparents were there. But I grew up in a small town outside of Detroit called Inkster. Now, why do I mention that small town in Inkster? Because there was a number of families who lived in that neighborhood. And I, I got one family in particular. Uh, there were like seven or eight of them. Uh, their youngest daughter the youngest girl was my first girlfriend, first bully, first tutor, all wrapped up in one. They would, they, every summer they would go down south and then they would came back. She was the one who introduced me to cane sugar, raw sugar cane, right? Most of the times we play hide and seek, her and her brothers and sisters would be walking barefoot up and down the street, right? Even though they lived in the north, they were deeply from the South. And it's them I thought of when I read Long Division. 
There are a number of modern American writers, uh, Matt Johnson, you know, Diaz, uh, Victor Laval, um, Michael Chabon, who've been able to add pop culture, just the normal stuff that we consume in pop culture, and use that to interrogate the fundamental questions of what it means to be American. Right, so in Uno Diaz's The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar, Oscar Wilde, he begins that book with a quote from Marvel Comics Fantastic Four about Galactus. And that was shocking to me because even though I grew up with this stuff, I grew up on monster movies, I grew up on science fiction, I grew up listening to hip-hop, I grew up on house music, I grew up on electro, I just thought that was the stuff we did. I didn't think that that could be the, the stuff that we could use to not just write, but to create literature, right? What long division effectively does is it takes modern, southern, black youth life, right? Youth like Trayvon, and uses that life to tell a story, not just what it means to be black and young growing up in the South, whether it's now or in the 80s or in the 60s. It's what it means to be human, what it means to be an American, right? So when I think about this book, and I'm so glad you're here so I could say this out loud, this is a blessing. It's a blessing to the people, and, and they're my friends on Facebook, and I know this is going to be recorded, so I won't say their names out loud, but as soon as they hear this, they'll know exactly who I'm talking about. This is to the family down the street, to that girl, to the people across the street who used to bully us. This is for all those kids who, for one reason or another, do not think of themselves as a fundamental, as the fundamental part of the American experience. On that note, thank you very, very much. I bring you Casey Lynn. Great. Wow. Woo. Downhill from here. I want to uh, thank Lester for uh, introducing me. I taught Lester's book uh, two, three years to my freshman uh, writing class. And so, uh, you know, meeting him is kind of like meeting a uh, celebrity. But I'm still trying to play it real cool. And um, I, pr- I just want to say I appreciate that, man. Thank you very much. Thank y'all for inviting me uh, out tonight. Uh, I've been going around the country doing these readings, and and what I've found is, um, you know, I can read for as long as you want, but I think that what people get the most out of is actually having conversations, not just with me, but with other people in the room. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read about six or seven pages of this book, and then I'll open it up for conversation. I want to give you a bit of context about this book. So I grew up in... um, My mother had me when she was 19 years old in a a city called Jackson, Mississippi. She was a uh, a sophomore at the time. My father was a a senior. And my father was a member of this organization called the Republic of New Africa. And their goal was they wanted to carve out some some land in Texas and make that all African-American land, all, all black land. My mother loved my father, but she did not love that idea. So when um, they had me, my father was really deep in the throes of the movement. Uh, Chokwe Lumumba, who's a mayor of Jackson now, um, was a big mentor of my father. So immediately my mother, partially because she didn't want me close to my father's revolutionary ways, sent me to live with my grandmother in a place called Forest, Mississippi. And my grandmother, um, my grandmother had this house that my my mother, her aunts, my aunts, my uncles all grew up in, and, and I don't know what y'all call it here. Maybe y'all call them the same thing. Back down south, we call them shotgun houses. You know what shotgun houses are? Okay. Really small shotgun house, and, and, and back home, the shotgun houses often are up on cinder blocks. I don't know if it's like that here or not. So the thing about being living in a shotgun house up on cinder blocks is that if your grandma's in the kitchen, and you're in the den, which is the living room, which also is the bedroom, um... She can hear you because it's up on cinder blocks, right? So grandma would always be like, quit making all that noise. And all I'd be doing was walking, right? Because she could just hear the reverberation. And so what she would say is, key, go outside. So I go outside, um, but she'd also tell me, go outside and don't come back smelling like the outside. So for me, as a kid, I was like, what? You want me to go outside, but you don't want me to smell like the outside, right? 
didn't work. So I would go, and what she really meant was like, don't go into like, you know, don't come back musty or don't come back smelling like uh, uh, China berry trees and all of that. But anyway, so we go outside, we go across the street often into these woods. And a few of my friends and I, we convinced ourselves that this hole in the ground in the woods, we convinced ourselves that there were like four or five other kids living in this hole. And, you know, every so often we get close to the hole, but we would never really go and open the hole up all the way. Um, but at nighttime, a lot of us, when, the, when our grandmothers and grandparents were asleep, because everybody around there lived with their grandparents, we go across the street and we get closer and closer and closer to the hole. And as we got older, we realized that the hole that we thought was like humongous was really a lot smaller than we thought. And um, one of the things we also did was we would write little stories about the characters in the hole. And so um, as I got older and I started writing a lot more, I thought that my first novel should actually be the story that led up to all of those characters being in the hole. And the big question for me was, who are these characters? How did they get there? Why were they tired? They were all young black kids, with the exception of one, um, and they were really tired. I could see their eyes, but I didn't know how they got there. And so Long Division, among other things, is an exploration of how these characters got got to this hole in the ground which ultimately is a time portal, or so we think. Okay, so I'm just going to read a few pages of the book. And the book starts with the city character, who's our protagonist in the first part. Um, He's in a contest. The contest is called Can You Use That Word in a Sentence? It's like a riff on a spelling bee. And he's participating with this other guy named Lavander Peeler. City loses in the first round. He snaps. His snap goes viral. He becomes this overnight internet sensation. But he's also sent to stay with his grandmother in rural post-Katrina, Mississippi, um, as in some way a punishment and education for what he's done. So what I'm going to read is the first few pages of City moving from Jackson to Milahatchee, Mississippi, and he's encountering his grandmother's encounter with racism. Okay? He's encountering his grandmother's encounter with racism. All right? As soon as I stepped off the Greyhound bus in Milahatchee, Mississippi, Grandma hugged my neck, but I was straight zoned out. That Long Division book had me feeling weird, new weird, like I was a character in a book or a video game or someone was writing or controlling all the craziness around me. Grandma interrupted my new weird with, my baby's still husky, and kissed me on both of my jaws. Then she grabbed my shoulders and took a step back. You look so intelligent, she said. I don't care what none of them folks say. Whenever I went down to Milahatchee, I always felt younger than I was. Mainly it was because Grandma had never really talked to me or treated me any different between the ages of 5 and 14. I had to trim the hedges, crack open walnuts, and get the okra out of the bottom of the deep freezer now, just like I did when I was 5 years old. I threw my stuff in the back of her bonnie veil and thought about all the ways, besides being the thickest Grandma in central central Mississippi, I would have bet my original wave brush that Grandma was probably the thickest, finest Grandma in all of Mississippi, Alabama, Arkansas, and Louisiana. I'm not saying Grandma was perfect either, but even the annoying stuff about Grandma, like how, we sh- how she was completely swinging from the scrotum sack of the Lord, was, well, kind of thick. Grandma was probably six feet tall, and every part of her body and face was so thick that nothing looked thick. But her stuff was symmetrical, too. Sometimes you see folks with thick parts and... Uh, sometimes you see folks with thick parts, but half of their body weight was all up in their ass, all up in their guts. Or one of their eyes was way bigger than the other one, or maybe there was too much distance between their eyes and maybe where their hairline started. For example, my mother had this rounded, thick, mushroom-style nose, and she looked like the early version of Wheezy on that Nick at Night show, The Jeffersons. Mama looked like Wheezy, but Mama's lips were kind of, well, I hate to talk about my own mama like this, but... Mama had lips like the white folks on Jersey Shore. There was no thickness or pinkish brown hang to Mama's lips. You saw thin, poofy lines, and then you saw teeth. Snake lips, I call the fat beneath her nose. I still don't know how in the hell that happened to Mama since she came out of the vagina of someone as thick and perfect-looking as Grandma. You wouldn't even know Grandma was six feet tall or the finest, thickest Grandma in the region until you walked right up on her. Anyway... Of all the different kinds of people in the world, Grandma was the last person I wanted to watch me act a fool at the contest. But I also knew, even though she couldn't say it, that she was one of the only people who would know what it was like to be up there on that stage and not know if there was a difference between being right and doing wrong. Grandma had a bag with two pork chop sandwiches in her hand and her eyes were twitching like a hummingbird while she sat in the driver's seat. Then folks is just evil. 
Grandma said. She never mumbled or slurred her sentences, and her voice was always deep, heavier than cane syrup. Plain devilish. You hear me? Grandma thought the man who worked in the bus station restaurant hadn't given her enough change back on purpose. Well, did you tell him how evil he was, Grandma? I asked her. No, said he. No telling what that man could have put in our food. She pulled off uh, all the way out of the bus station. You got to be careful with them folks if you stay with me for the next few days. You hear me? I nodded. If you learn anything after messing with them folks on that stage, it should be that you never, ever know. She looked me right in my eye. Never know what, Grandma? I asked her. How far they'll go to get you. Grandma told me that we had to stop by Walmart before we went home. She said Walmart had a sale on, a new, on her new favorite brand of wig, Wigs for Blacks, and that she might as well get the wig today since this was her half day off. My grandma had three jobs. She worked as a housekeeper at the Island View Casino. She washed and ironed clothes for three white families in town, and she sold pound cake and fruit salad every Saturday afternoon. When we pulled into the lot of uh, Walmart, a green pickup truck flew past us and damn near knocked the front end off of the Bonneville. Grandma stuck out her arm and secured my chest while slamming on the brakes. Jesus, give me strength, she said. What in the world is wrong with your children? It was the middle of the day, so most folks who worked hard and sweated for a living were still at work. Grandma was getting ready to park next to this orange and gray Cadillac sitting on 22-inch rims. And she said, young folks ain't got nothing better to do than spend their money on long cars and crazy tags. What? I said. What a nigga do in the dark will damn sure come to the late somehow. Grandma? Yes, baby. I appreciate how it sounds when you say nigga, I told her. And I'm sorry about acting a fool at that contest. Shh, Grandma said and parked the car. And leave your brush in that car. Folks in here like to steal everything that they nailed down. The Milahatchee Walmart was always packed. Always. I never had anything stolen the hundreds of times I've been in there, and folks always look so happy walking around, especially in the electronics section. I walked with Grandma to the wig section of the store, and this old white woman with wrinkly skin and a maroon scarf around her pudgy neck and her hair in a ball came up on us. The woman's name tag said Louise Elsington. She had gold for days draped around the outside of her scarf, and her fingers were the shiniest rings I'd ever seen in my life. She walked up on us kind of lightweight fast with one hand on her hip and the other hand on her chin. Hey, hello there, she said. We want y'all to know that today we've got a special on Wigs for Blacks brand. She pointed to the raggedy looking wigs on the sale rack. We sure do. I could tell that the lady was from Jackson and had probably worked in the outside malls in Jackson before taking a job at the Milahatchee Walmart. At the outside Jackson Mall, all the older white ladies with hairs and balls and penny loafers always said long O sounding words like O sounding words. But in Milahatchee, the long O sounding words sounded like long O, no matter who said them. So, she said, if you buy one of those Gary Curl wigs, y'all get a free subscription to the new Ebony magazine. She trailed off and just looked at me. I tried to look away and then look back, but she was still watching. Y'all got a talkative little devil there, don't y'all? She said to Grandma. Were you the one doing all that talking on the internet yesterday? Yes, ma'am, Grandma said. My baby does love to talk, but don't pay him no attention. She patted me on the back. Now, how much did you say the Gary Curl wig was? I couldn't believe Grandma was talking like that in front of that lady. Her voice, her body, everything shrunk. It was like she wasn't even Grandma anymore. I never heard Grandma say ma'am to someone who was younger than her. The rumor was actually that Grandma brought the Jerry Curl wig down from Milwaukee in the early 80s. And now she was acting like she couldn't even pronounce it right. All because she was talking in front of some weird looking white woman who couldn't even pronounce the long O in so and do. Grandma and I I held hands as we walked out to the Bonneville. If Tom Henry could have seen you raising hell on that TV and that Internet, he would have swore up and down that he was looking through his red eyes at himself. Why? I asked Grandma. Grandma started getting comfortable in the driver's seat chair. I could tell she was about to go into one of her granddaddy stories. The stories always started different, but every one of them, except the one that ended with him disappearing in Lake Marathon, ended with Grandma acting like a demon and ended with my granddaddy acting like a demon and destroying something before Grandma intervened. I remember one Saturday we got to fighting about money or something. Something she said. He was tired of me working all these jobs, you know. Anyway, Tom Henry claimed he was going walking to get his mind right. I knew that meant he was about to go get that damn stuffed monkey he liked to keep and walk out in the woods across the street, across the road from the house. 
Anyway, when he was gone, his friends Cherry and Shank come over here looking for him to go fishing. All three of us, we sat out there on that porch, you know. Of course, I ain't tell Cherry and Shank he was over there in the woods with no fake monkey. So I just said he wasn't nowhere to be found. Soon as I said that, here come your granddaddy prancing out them woods with that fake monkey in his hand and one of them damn shitting grins on his face. Tom Henry walks up on the porch and tried to hide the monkey behind his back. Cherry say, Tom, what the hell you doing holding an ugly-ass monkey, man? Running off in them woods. Ain't you done outgrown dolls in hide-and-seek? Like I told you, I reckon your granddaddy react like a demon when somebody stands on his own porch and calls him crazy. So Tom Henry commenced to beat the clothes off of Cherry and Shank. I'm talking about off. You hear me? Grandma was laughing so hard and smiling ear to ear. And when the police came, Tom Henry was still beating both of them to the white meat until I calmed him down. He spent two nights in jail for that. Grandma got busy when it came to her sentences. With Grandma's at-home sentences, it was like there was no screen between her mind and your ears. You got all of her. All of her voice. She could destroy anyone in the region in a sentence contest, including Lavanda Peeler and me, as long as the judges were fair. I realized then, though, that Grandma's at-home sentences and her in-the-car sentences were completely different and opposite of her in-the-mall sentences. Hey, Grandma, I said, would you tell that story in the mall in front of that white lady with those same dynamic sentences? First of all, that wasn't no story, she said, and I don't know nothing about no dynamic sentences. That's the truth, and the truth ain't got a thing to do with no goddamn white woman city. Oh, okay, I said, knowing she was lying through her teeth. Grandma and I walked up on the porch of her house. Hurricane Katrina had tore up Grandma's shotgun house eight years earlier, but within a year she'd gotten a new shotgun house built in the same spot. The house was raised off the ground about a foot and a half by some cinder blocks. The porch led to the front door, which opened to the living room, and from there, depending on the angle you looked in the house, you could see through the bedroom, the dining room, and the kitchen. Grandma didn't have a hall either, like the houses on TV and in books. Grandma's house had a living room with the old floor model big screen TV, a glass table with some Bibles and photos, albums on it, a played out stereo that only played Mahalia Jackson, and my Uncle Rail's sleeping bag right in the middle of the floor. Uncle Rail stayed with Grandma probably four times a week. <clears throat> anyway, pictures of my family, the ones live and dead, were all over the living room. Walked ten more feet, and there was a dining room with a plastic chandelier over a wooden table. On one side of the table were two big deep freezers full of dead animal parts and food from the garden. On the other side of the table was a washing machine and a basket filled with the white folks' clothes Grandma washed to make a little bit more money. And on the weekend, fifteen more feet, there was a tiny kitchen. Four more feet, and you were out the back door under a clothesline where there was a scary workshed I was never allowed to go in and a china berry tree. I kept looking at Rail's sleeping bag, wondering when he was coming home. I wanted to know what he thought of what I'd done at the contest the night before. I figured he was going to be the only person in my family who, actually, who was actually proud of me. Grandma, did you get wireless yet? Wireless? Wireless what? Internet. No, nah, we ain't got none of that mess, and you ain't going to be hooking up no wireless to my TV either. It ain't got nothing to do with the TV, I told her. It's so people can check their email. What does Uncle Rail do if he wants to check his email? He heads down the road to the library, like everyone else, I reckon. I wanted to push it more, but I didn't want Grandma getting mad at me. I know Mila Hatchie was only a bus ride away, but it felt like a time warp. It always felt like it was behind whatever time we were in in Jackson. But Hurricane Katrina, after Hurricane Katrina, it's like time went um, fast in reverse instead of just slowing down. <laughs> Why are you sweating, City? Grandma asked me. Go in the bathroom and wipe your face. I turned to open the screen door and half-stepped in the door when Grandma finished her sentence. And go get my switch. What? I stared at Grandma's face, not hardcore like I had the power to shoot liquid heat from my eyes, but more like I had x-ray vision, and I was looking at the raggedy spinal cord that held the skull, that held the mouth, that held the tongue, that formed those terrible words, go get my switch. You remember where it is, don't you? Go on and get my switch now, Grandma said. You can't be acting a fool like that in front of them folks. You know we can't have that. Man, she said it so calm like it was only a whooping. Grandma hadn't whooped me in like two and a half years, but what could I do? Nothing, except drop my head, walk through the screen door, through the living room, through the kitchen, out the back screen door, around the side of the house, and under the china berry tree. 
I had just matured to the point where I could get nice with myself in places other than the shower and the bathroom at school. And here I was about to get a beating like a child. I almost hated this part of the beating more than the actual beating. The anticipation and fear of all those lashes, bills and bills. And then you realize how shameful it is that you're about to get your back, your ass, your elbows beaten with the same switch you're about to pick. And the whole time you're thinking that you don't want to mess up on purpose and pick a little thin switch. You also don't want to pick one that's too big to leave welts because that means grandma's going to take her fine ass out there to pick the switch herself. And it didn't matter how deep in the bush the perfect switch was, grandma would always find it. Always. I narrowed my choices to a slender one with a lot of leaves on it or a big one that, would, <laughs> that wouldn't wrap around my fat back too well. Now I had to hand it to her. Should I smile or cry? Grandma was out on the porch scaling the nasty big fish we were going to eat for dinner when I finally made it back. Should I smile or cry? I opened the screen door and waited for her to extend her hand. Here you go, Grandma. I acted like I was about to hand her the switch, but when she reached for it, I dropped it on the ground and took off running through the screen door, through the TV room, through the kitchen, and on out of the back screen door. And Grandma came flying after me. I ran on the other side of the clothesline and tried to use one of her fitted sheets for protection. Boy, put down my damn fitted sheet, she said. Put it down. I threw the yellow fitted sheet on the ground and ran and ran, and Grandma ran and ran too. Then she stopped by my granddaddy's work shed, right next to the china berry tree. She threw down that wax switch I gave her and then dove right in the bush and pulled out a switch that looked like a six-foot whip with a handle. I understood right there that I wasn't simply running away from the greatest whooper in our family. Hell, I was running away from the greatest whooper in the history of Mississippi whoopings. Grandma started running after me again. When I reached the back of the house, she was in Switcher's reach, but she tried to turn the corner too sharp and slid into a split. Damn. I knew Grandma would no longer just beat me for acting a fool at the contest. In the 14 years that I'd known Grandma, she whipped me about six times, and the crazy thing was that she never looked at me like she wanted to rip the spine out of my back when she was doing the whooping. You could tell that it was just kind of regretful work for her. Five minutes later, I was sobbing and balled up on the ground like a greasy, burnt, brown cinnamon roll with some good waves. To tell you the truth, I felt honored to be whooped by Grandma, and I felt proud that during the entire whooping, I never let go of my new brush. After the beating in the bath, Grandma prayed for me while I sat on the bed. Then we ate. I got so full off a nasty-tasting, but nasty-looking, good-tasting catfish and fries, some iced tea, and thick pound cake that I couldn't breathe. I helped Grandma do the dishes, then we jumped in her bed to take a little nap before the Bernie Mac show and Meet the Browns came on. I asked Grandma if it was okay for us to sleep on top of the sheet in our underwear with the fan directly on us. Even though I was lying there in my underwear, Grandma looked at me in a way that made me feel like I was wearing something top-notch like a leather tuxedo or matching Jordan 6s. And even though my mama had seen me naked way more times, I felt less weird about grandma seeing me. Grandma had a way of looking at you when you were naked that didn't make you feel terribly fat and soft. Most other folks, especially my mama, made you looked at me naked and made me feel like the fattest, softest ninth grader out of all the states in the Southeastern Conference. My mama tried not to look at me like that, but you could tell she was trying too hard by the way she kept cutting her eyes away from me and saying stuff like, we should probably start buying Diet Mountain Dew, Satoyan. But with Grandma, whether I was naked or not, she looked at me the same way. To tell you the truth, if Grandma was trying to get the hem right on my slack, she could have accidentally bumped into my scrotum sack, and I, would have, I wouldn't have cared because I knew Grandma wouldn't have cared. If anybody else bumped into my scrotum sack like that, I'd probably act like I was dead or paralyzed until they left. Grandma just looked at me without talking for the next 15 seconds. That's a long time to look at someone who's right in front of you. She smiled real thick and slung her arm across my chest. Them folks is millions and millions of miles away from here today. You hear me? Millions of miles away. I want you to read the Bible every day you hear, city. You're trying to get free, but you can't do it by yourself. We got to get you to that water, city. That's why your mama sent you here. Wait, I sat up in bed. That's messed up. Mama sent me down here to get whooped and baptized for what happened at that contest? I waited for an answer, but the lids of Grandma's eyes slowly fell down. Her breathing got all heavy again, and about six seconds later, Grandma was asleep. Her thick arm still slung across my chest, protecting me from something she wanted me to believe was millions and millions of miles away. Thanks.
I got sick yesterday, so I'm like, this is work right now. Okay, so um, I don't know if you have any questions or if you have any questions of each other, but if so, I'd love to. Yep. Um, question during your presentation. Can you, in your feelings, and this is very difficult, so in your writings and all about the Trayvon situation, and the police coming, where did it come from, and what's next? As far as building, putting together or strengthening race relations. As far as what? What's the last part of your question? Strengthening race relations. Oh, boy. Um, that's a big question, right? So I'm going to ask the room to help me with that question. Uh, but I'll just break it down into parts. Did, it, did we see it? Did I see it coming? Uh, I mean, that's a great question. Yes, right? You saw it coming. But, but what's interesting to me about... Interesting is definitely the wrong word to use in this situation. What's terrible to me about the situation is... Most black people I know saw it coming, but we all waited. And, and, and part of us ex- maybe wanted, expected a not guilty verdict. Like I was riding from, uh, I was driving from uh, Rhode Island. Um, I was driving up to Rhode Island, actually, at midnight, around midnight when the verdict came out. And I was driving with the person I think is the most cynical person on earth, right? She's also the smartest person on earth, the, to me. And, you know... She said from the beginning, there's no way those white women are going are gonna, to are gonna, uh, find Zimmerman guilty. But as we waited and we heard the judge, say, you know, do the reading, like she was quiet and actually like squeezing my hand because she thought it was possible. So the question for me, and I don't know if this is your question, but I'm, I'm interested in what that is in us. Is it a way to, to ward off trauma? Like, like there's, in some way, there's no reason we should have ever thought that they would find that man guilty. Not because the prosecution was terrible, even though the prosecution was terrible, but because it's just unlikely to me that five white women, six, five white women and someone else in, Mississippi, in, uh, in Florida could see Trayvon Martin as a child. That's what it's about to me. And so, first part of your question, no, I was not surprised. Second part of the question, I think, is harder. How do we, I mean, I think maybe we could ask the, the room for help. We could probably get less in on this. Is it going to help race relations? Les, what do you think? Um, with all due respect to the question, I think it's an excellent question. But I think long divisions are really good. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's, that's a good point. <laughs> um... Yeah, Les is the OG boy. That's how you do it. <laughs> That's how you do it. Uh, I don't know, man. I want to say something else, but can I just say one more thing? I mean, I can tie it into the book. Uh, this city character, I think, is dealing with like what I call in my essay books, like a crazy making nation. And what I think that our nation tends to do to everyone, and, and here I'm focusing on black boys, is that it, it encourages a kind of crazy making, and then it punishes you for being crazy. And it punishes you for not being crazy. And so if we can tie this at all into Trayvon, I think that what I'm trying to explore is what happens not just when you're dealing with the crazy making nation, but when you're dealing with grown people you respect, friends, and all these other people who have also been made quote-unquote crazy by the nation. And we haven't honestly and actively ask that question of ourselves. So what we, what we try to do is we try to change, right, without honestly reckoning with who we are. That never, that never, ever, 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 ever works. You can't change. You can't become less racist if you're not racist. You can't become less sexist if you're not sexist. Do you know what I'm saying? And so to, I think that one of the things that this book is trying to explore is what happens with this, these two or three narrators um, who in some form of a fashion, I think, are trying to push back against not just a crazy-making nation, but a nation that wants you to lie, a nation that wants you to say, it's all good, it's going to be all right, when they're looking around and they're seeing people who aren't all right, and they don't feel all right. And, and at the end of the book, they end up in a hole. They, these young black kids end up in a hole with other people. And I think that's important because, you know, Ralph Ellison had his Invisible Man in a Hole by himself, and I'm I mean, great probably one of the greatest books I've ever read, but I didn't like that he was there by himself. And so for me, I just think this crazy making nation makes people crazy, makes kids crazy. 
But I'm also trying to be like, what if? Like, what if there were other kids around you that understood in some form or fashion that this shit is crazy making? And what happens if they spent a lot of time together loving each other underneath the ground? I mean, that's, a, 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 and that's an absurd proposition. But it's no more absurd than, than, the, than the makings of this nation, which are, which are fucking absurd. Like, absurd. What happened to Trayvon Martin is absurd. What's happening today is absurd. Right? There's a talking cat in my book. People who review my book have been like, I don't get what the talking cat is. But you get white men putting on sheets and fucking on top of their head? Like, that's absurd. That is absurd. Do you know what I'm saying? So, I just wanted to tie it into the question. I, I, I think, you know, that's, that's my answer to that question. Thank you, Les. Any other comments or questions about this? Or for each other? Here in the first few pages that you did read, I remember growing up, you know, and, and I lived a similar life, you know. I grew up in New Jersey, uh-huh. um, born to a half black, half German mother, wow. I'm born to a half uh, Ecuadorian and Japanese father. And the 60s, you know, during the Korean and Vietnam situation. And um, my mother was born in Newark, New Jersey. And at the time, Newark was a predominantly Jewish community. Her father was Jewish, but her father was absent from her family because her father had fathered 14 black children right. by different women and was Whoa. married to a Jewish woman with a whole bunch of children. And the funny part of that is your story, when you talk about race, in, in my case, my grandmother, who was a black, an African-American woman from the South, she took me in to her home, which was in a really, really small rural area in, yeah. in, in New Jersey, but it was in an all-white community. Right. You know, and it was, she raised me, you are a multi-ethnicity. Yeah. So you have to act like the other ethnicity. Uh-huh. You cannot act like the other black children that you'll see. Wow. And the sad part about it was, um, I have a piece called Not Before the Even Shade. Um, I couldn't go outside until after the summer mm. because I couldn't mess up my yellowness. Whoa. And when you were talking about the characters that had said something like that, um, it, as it relates to the Trayvon Martin situation, I was sitting here not trying to say anything as an educator, but also I think it's a wake-up call for society and for especially black American families that we need to start re-educating our children and having our children feel more proud about themselves as opposed to the cultural um, instance in which we live. Mm-hmm. Right now, I, I don't have any children, but my sister has 11. And that's that's plenty for both of y'all. <laughs> she has 11 and only one boy. I mean, one girl. Wow. Ooh. And, um, and her, five of her children came to Baltimore to stay with me. Uh-huh. Yeah. From Newark to Baltimore for them. And the, what, I'm, what I'm saying to answer his question, and as it relates to the book, like you said, there is this, this, this hole. And um, it's a hole that has been such since Reconstruction. Right. And you think about, you know, it's now almost 2014. The only way things are going to change is that as we as individuals have to change our own thinking. And culturally, then things will change. The nation, as you said, it's messed up. Right. And it's not like it's going to change tomorrow. But um, the book, just reading from you reading the excerpts, yeah. I really have to do this book. It's really, you know. That's sweet. Really, you know, That's really sweet. Really, um, I think that we need to, as, as people and as authors, we need to support each other and to get it out there, especially this book, because just reading the excerpt, it's not your typical, right. you know, quote, quote, black book. I mean, as an author, I've read so many, and I'm getting tired of, like, the urban novel where yeah. everybody's dead or whatever. <laughs> right. This right here is something where we can actually sink our teeth into it and give it to our children and say, this is something for you to aspire to, or to find out, you know what I mean? Yeah, uh, thank you for that comment actually but i want to say one thing about two things about that one is that um you know th- this book you're a writer so 
you told me you were writing when we first came in. One of the beautiful things about writing for me, and I think other writers I've talked to, is like a novelist, I'm sorry, not just writers, but novelists, is like when you start to create a fictive world or a fictive character and the character and the world actually move away from your familiar, you know what I mean? I think the spirit of a lot of what we do, feel, think um, invigorates a lot of our characters. And early on in a lot of our uh, novelist early fiction, the characters are really proxies for them, you know, like they're them. And one of the wonderful things about this book for me and I felt okay putting it out in the world was when, you know, all of these characters, the grandmother character, the mother character, uh, both the boys, a lot of the little girls, like, they became familiar, but not because I'd known them. So, so they went beyond my reality, and they actually started flirting with my imagination. But in my reality, one of the things that I, wanna, that I wanted to explore fictively was, you know, what happens when you're raised by a, ch- by, by a grandmother or a parent, for me it was my grandmother, who looks you in your eyes and actually thinks you are beautiful. Do you see what I'm saying? I mean, I think like this idea is something that we don't really talk about. And I can't say I had it with anybody else in my family. Definitely not my mother, definitely not my father, not my aunts, not little girlfriends, not my friend boys. Nobody looked me in my eyes and thought like I was beautiful, told me I was beautiful. So for me, one of the things I'm exploring is... <clears throat> My grandmother looked in my eyes, told me I was beautiful, yet I saw her in different situations disbelieve her beauty. Do you see what I'm saying? And so there's so much intimacy with the grandmother and the grandmother's body and vice versa in this book, partially because I'm trying to explore that relationship, um, not just of intimacy, but beauty, particularly like in this hyper-raced nation. You know, and 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 the second thing is, and I explored this in my essay collection coming out uh, next week. It's funny, publishers, right? It's supposed to come out in August. Trayvon Martin happened. Now they pushed it up. Like people make money off of anything. Um, um, but my grandmother also, you know, and my mother, they used to always tell me, "You got to be better than white people. You got to work two or three times to be better than white people." And and I was a hard head kid. I got kicked out of school a lot. You know, I went to um, juvie. I was a bad kid. And part of, but but I didn't, you know, I didn't smoke. I didn't drink. I didn't sell drugs. I didn't do any of that kind of stuff, which a lot of my other friends did. But I just, I just didn't listen. And one of the things I refused to listen to was this idea that you got to be better than white people. And so what I'm trying to explore in this book is. So, you know, this grandmother character who I describe as like thick, wonderful, massive mammoth. And then here she is talking to some white woman who can't even fucking pronounce English. And she's making herself small. That's crazy. Again, this is part of the crazy makingness of this nation. Do you understand what I'm saying? And so for me, I'm really interested in this essay book and in this book about what happens when you focus and place whiteness as the normative center from which you really create excellence. And and as a and as and as a professional, like I just I can't do it. I can't cre- I can't compare myself to some mediocre white dude because I'm just going to be a little bit better than mediocre. And and I don't know why I would compare myself to mediocre white dude when I got my grandmother right there. You know what I'm saying? When I got Fannie Lou Hamer right there. When I you know what I'm saying? So for me, it's just like I think we need to recalibrate. When I say we, I'm talking about black folks too. We got to recalibrate this idea. And white folks can never be the norm from which we assess our excellence because they ain't excellent. That's not a dish. They're just not. I was going to uh, say that uh, to answer the gentleman here, as long as we have cases, sons of mothers who have to fight for their son's innocence, we're going to continue to have problems. We have a case with Warsham uh, brothers out in uh, Park Heights uh-huh. who uh, attacked a boy. Uh, he was a schoolboy, maybe around 14 or something. And he was walking from school to meet his mom. His mom was there to pick him up, to take him home. But he gets beaten up before he gets to his mom. <laughs> and then the court proceedings seem to favor the attackers. Right. And uh, another case where a policeman um, choked and strangled a young man, I guess he was one of the boys throwing rocks or whatever, at his house. 
and he strangles him, and but the policeman is still working. Right. And so as long as we have these cases that of injustice uh, for our young sons and, and our women too, uh-huh. uh, long division. Right. That's right. I mean, I, I just, I don't know what to say. I just agree with you. But what do we do, though? I mean, you, 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 you look and you present yourself like a wise woman. That's kind of cliche. But what do we do? We have to keep on fighting. Right. Right. Absolutely. When I was growing up, I read James Baldwin. Yeah. Who's the James Baldwin of today? Man, I wish I could flip some stuff on y'all. Um, I mean, I'm not, I'm not coming back, probably. But why do you want there to be one? Well, he was he was a voice to me. Yeah. When I was growing up. Yeah. And and I think that it would be nice if we had a voice like James Baldwin, who's above the crowd. Wow, man, that's that's um. That's really interesting. And then when you like scan the room, I don't expect that to come from you, you know, just cause, because 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 you're white and you wear suspenders. Like I don't expect you to Are to you say. Stereotyping <laughs> of course, <laughs> of course, of course. Aren't you? I mean, every I thought I thought everybody was stereotyping it. I'm not grounding it, but I'm definitely stereotyping. Absolutely stereotype. Um, and if you're not, I would I would love to know how you don't stereotype. But I'm, I'm definitely stereotype. Um, but you know, I teach a number of courses on James Baldwin, and uh, you know, man. Whenever I do these talks, we don't talk much about writing. We talk people always don't talk about cultural stuff. But just on the sentence level, sentence level, I never read a writer, with the exception of of, of Toni Morrison, whose sentences could find you. Like, the sentences could, like, find me, and even though I wanted to, like, scoot away and be like, nah, you're not really talking about me. Like, the sentences found you. Octavia Butler, I feel like the form, the form found me. But for, 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 for Morrison and Baldwin, the sentences found me. And so when we say, do we need another James Baldwin? I wasn't alive then, so I don't know how, I mean, you know, I, I've read a lot of biographies about Baldwin, and, and like most figures who die, it seems like we mythologize them in their death because when you read when you read a lot of when you read a lot of uh, of work when you read a lot of biographies and you read a lot of lost letters, it didn't seem like the nation really appreciated or loved him when he was alive. But I think we need, in some way, we need millions of James Baldwin's, and 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 we need to accept that James Baldwin wanted to and tried to kill himself a number of times. Right, that's really important too. And actually, James Baldwin, who spent his career telling the majority of his career, telling white readers, you know, you need to divest yourself of whiteness. By the end of his career, he was regretful about that. He was like, why did I spend my whole life trying to get these people to be better? It's not going to work. I'm not saying that's what I feel right now. And Lord knows, I hope I don't get to that point. But James Baldwin, that's what I'm trying to say. The greatest in my mind, sentence writer in American history at the end of his career, was like, I wish I would not have spent so much time trying to convince these people to divest themselves of whiteness. And so, for me, if we want to be James Baldwin, I just think we, I mean, I wish, I think we need millions of James Baldwin, is all I want to say. Because one of the things he was really dedicated to was examination. You know, there's all these wonderful quotes, and unexamined life isn't worth living, and all this other kind of stuff, right? Love, like love is, love must be tough. Love, love just can't love. We must be sensual from the act of making love to the act of breaking bread. Like all of these things, we, we all need to to get the best of James Baldwin. But the sad part is when we look at James Baldwin, we're going to see that the world, the nation ate him up, too. So that's what I'm saying. Like, it, it's, it's I'm not even I'm not even one of these cynical dudes, but like the nation ate him up. So I don't know what we do, but I do believe we need a lot of James Baldwin. With, with less alcohol problems, because he was also an alcoholic. He was also related. Well, anyone who is gay and alcoholic cannot be all bad. <laughs> That's a great, that might be true. I never met a bad gay alcoholic. I haven't. That's, that's a good point. Like, my friends who are gay and alcoholics, like, they're kind of like some of the best alcoholic people to be around. <laughs> I'm with you on that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I have two questions. So those that haven't read the book yet, it covers 
there's a time travel element that covers three different periods. The modern day, like 2013, uh, 1985, and then like 1965, 1964, something like that. Yeah, right before Freedom Summer. Yeah, so the 65 period, so the first question is a research question. It's not that hard to get stuck for the present. It's not that hard to get stuck for that 60s period. But that 85 period, I'd like to know you know, what you had to do to get the even. So I remember what types of clothes I was wearing. Like right. The, short, the, the thing, I didn't wear them because I get jacked. Right. right. Wear, pat leather deep. Right. Mountain little suits. You know, yeah. That type of, to that type of stuff, where you had to go to get the accent to get what people were doing. And then the second question is more of a, That's a, a good question. resilience question. That's because a good you question. got a lot of pushback about the content right. of, the, of the book. And you maintained, you know, to the extent that the book isn't perfect, it's not because you compromise your integrity. Right. You just had to make technical decisions. Right. And I'd like you to talk about that. All right. So that's 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 super 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 good question. So the first uh, question is, uh, I'll just go back. It, it it was easier to do the research for '64, partially because they're just the you know when I went back and talked to a lot of people in Mississippi. And actually had to do a lot of research. And I'm not from the coast, so I had to go and do coastal research. And I had to do a lot of research about the the history of the Klan's terrorization of Jewish Americans in Mississippi, which is something I had no idea about. So I had to interview a number of Jewish families about about that particularly. Uh, And and I got, you know, some useful stuff from 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 them. My mother's a political scientist. She, you know, my mother again, she 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 had me she was a sophomore at Jackson State. She went back to teach at Jackson State. And she was a political scientist. So the whole, you know, growing up, our house was filled with books. She's one of those mothers where you have to read before you do anything. <laughs> you know, you can't even piss before you got read a book. You know, you gotta write an essay about it. And so, you know, I read, I read, I read, I read. And she's interesting, too, because she wouldn't let me read black books. She made me read, quote-unquote, classic books before I could read the black books. And I still think that was, I don't think that was a good idea. Um, But in terms of, like, the research for the 80s, I mean, this is going to sound so bad, man. But, you know, I talked to um, a lot of older cousins and uncle characters who were older than, because, the city character in here is older than I am. I was, you know, I was born in like 74. And so I was only 10 in 84, 11 in 85. And I can, you know, I can talk about Prince, Michael Jackson, New Edition, um, you know, Velcro sneakers and all that other kind of stuff. But I needed to hear from some people who were actually like in their te- upper teens or in their 20s and in, in, in the early mid 1980s. So I talked to um, a lot of my cousins. I talked to some writer friends who lived through that, lived through that period. And I wanted I wanted to know what about the language was specific to 1985 as opposed to the clothes. Because when you talk to people about 85, they're going to talk about music and clothes. That's the first thing most people are going to bring up. But I wanted to talk to like some writers who, who lived through that time and talked about um, Mississippi writers who talked about uh, the importance of, of language at that time. So there's some writers like Jerry Ward. Um, my mother had the letters of Margaret Walker Alexander, who was Richard Wright's autobiographer. I looked at a lot of those to see how she was writing in the 1980s. And, you know, it's just like with any sort of book. All of this kind of stuff doesn't end up in the book, but it's all the kind of work that you have to do. Right. Um, and I still don't th- I still don't think I got it right. And nobody ever asked that question. They always ask about the 60s question. The other question uh, <clears throat> is. I mean, I guess it was kind of alluded to earlier and. um I sold this book initially when I was uh I was really young. I I I was right out of graduate right out of graduate school, so I was like 25 or something like that. And this publishing company gave me a lot of money to me for me cuz I didn't grow up with a lot of money. Um they gave me a lot of money and uh I didn't understand publishing at that point. I thought if you buy a book, you must love the book. You know, I was ready to edit because I'm, I'm like a voracious reviser. I was ready to do edits, but the but the editor kept putting off the edits and putting off the edits. And I'm like, man, we got a release date in like 2006, uh, February. <laughs> it's December 2005. You haven't talked to me yet about this book. I know we got to do something to it, right? I, you know. Um, so long story short. I finally got in touch with the editor. The editor told, editor told me she was moving from this press, which was, the, which was at that time the most lucrative African-American imprint in the country. She was moving from there to Penguin. Um, 
and a new editor came in, told me she believed in my book. Uh, she wanted to make sure I wanted to stay with her. The editor who left and went to Penguin called me, said there was some mess that happened at this other press. I want to know if you if you're willing to bring your book over here to me. Um, and you know how it works. Like, I was like, really? She's like, I can give you more money for one book than the two book deal. I had a two book deal at this other place. And I was like, you can give me more money for one book. And she's like, yeah, you're going to want that. So she's like, but first thing you got to do is you got to get out of your deal. So I got out of the deal, which was a bad mistake, (laughs) but I'm a young, stupid, no money, believing whatever the fuck people say. I got out of the deal. And so I got a deal, and then I called. I'm like, you know, blah, 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 blah. I'm out. What's up? And she's like, well, there's this agent I think you should get in contact with, and then we can work out the details. Because I had another agent before, but I fired him. And I'm like, wait a minute. You didn't tell me that I was going to have to get out of my deal and get get an agent of your picking. That's also not – you never want to get an agent that your publisher tells you to get. Then They're they're probably not going to have your best interest at heart. Anyway. So I left there, uh, I mean, uh, um, I waited months and months and months later, this new agent um, signed this terrible deal with Penguin, and this book that I just read to you, the, the, the editor was like, um, we needed to move it down from 260 pages to like 150 pages. And I was like, man, I love to revise, but that's a lot, you know? And then she was like, and also, we want to pitch it to sixth graders. And I said, sixth grade, you know, because, but I'm, I'm a writer. So when I hear, it's like uh, daredevils, you know, when you're like, I want you to turn five flips in a row and land on your elbow. You know, when you hear stuff like that, you want to try it because you're a writer. And so, but then she was like, I want you to try to write it to sixth graders. So that was my, I'm like, wait a minute, sixth graders, like this book. And then she was like, yeah, that's, 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 that's what's going to make the most money. You know, we believe in your vision. And then I was like, okay, I'll try it, right? And then she was like, also, we're going to need you to change a lot of the language. We're going to need you to take out this character, this character, this character. We need to sell at the libraries. I had this incentive-laden contract, you know, when, like, athletes sign these contracts. And, like, if you get five touchdowns or six touchdowns, you get extra. So I had a contract that was all incentive-laden. So I pretty much had to win a Pulitzer to make serious money, make the same money that I was making at the other place. But I was young and stupid, so I did it. I tried to do it, um, and then she said, and then she said, and I don't want, I don't, I don't think you should write at all about Hurricane Katrina, and I think you should take the racial politics out of the book. And at that point, I was just like, "This ain't my, that's not my book." You know what I'm saying? Like, I, 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 I want to, I want to be published. I want the second half of my advance. I want my grandmother to be proud of me, which was, the, which was the most important thing. But I can't do that. You know, that's just not my book. I, I, that's literally, I can't, there's no book without that. <clears throat> but, you know, the thing is, most of the times when people sign these book deals, they have children, they're married, and they don't really, or, and, or they don't have jobs. You know, I'm a college professor. I don't have, I want children. I don't have any children. So I could hold out. You know what I'm saying? I didn't have somebody else who really needed money from me. So I held out and held out. And then the published the editor was like, you know, I mean, my agent was like, you know, you got a, a lot of books in you. Why don't you just do it? You know, I was like, I, I, I can't do it, man. Integrity, I can't do it. That's not the book I want to write. And then they try to get you. Like, they try to, you know, are you saying you can't do it? And then, you know, you're like, oh, I could do it. You know, I could write that book. But why would I? Anyways, long story short, I, uh, I, um, I, got out of the, I got out of the deal by writing a letter to the, uh, to the editor. Uh, I let my agent go. And they came back with a letter saying that we're going to keep the second half of your advance and we own the title. So the title was initially called My Name is City. Penguin owns that. If I ever use that, I have to pay them however much amount of money. It's just brutal out here. So if I ever use it, I have to pay them. And 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 then and then I went with this um, independent um, publisher who'd also published my homegirl Jasmine Ward's first book. Jasmine Ward won the National Book of the Year. Um, and they published Where the Line Must Bleed. And they also published Leonard Pitts, who's a, who's a columnist that I love. And I was like, man, this is independent, who's doing a lot of great African-American stuff. Um, so I talked to this person. And I had some other major people interest, but I was just, I talked to Ava DuVernay, who um, is this filmmaker. And she was like, you know, we have memories for a reason. 
And she's like, you know, if you remember the pain of that experience, why would you put yourself back in that experience, right? Because we always, this is like, this is how gamblers get. You always think you'll be special. You always be like, oh, I'll get into it again, I won't. But anyway, so I thought about going with a major. I went with, with Agate. I published this essay last summer that a lot of people, um, I don't know if they liked it, but they clicked on it. And these publishing companies, they just like love clicks, right? So after this, after this essay came out, all of those publishing companies who initially wouldn't really mess with me came back. All the biggest agents in New York came, sent me emails and called me. Let's meet. Let's do this. Let's do that. Because they, they saw the clicks. They believe clicks could translate into dollars. So I had to decide if I go with a major again and take a lot of money up front or if I stay with this independent. And again, I just I'm not made for. Um, I remember it. I remember what it felt like. And so I. Stay with the independent and um, published a book with both of my books with Agate. So that's a long, long-winded way of of, of saying that it. it um, I think it ended up okay. But I made myself sick over the stress. That's the part I didn't talk about. I got real. I made myself really sick over the stress. And it's weird because you just, you just, you just don't think your your people are gonna be proud of you. You know, it's like weird. I don't know. I don't know how to. T- it's like this. What I'm saying. It's so it's so strange. I just thought my grandmother really needed to see this book, and I thought my mother really wanted me to come out with like penguins. So I was like, I was torn. And my mother doesn't even, you know, she don't know what penguin is. You know what I mean? It's just like you just people just do crazy things to to themselves. I think. Well, I do, but um, but it worked out. You know, the book has been getting a lot of critical acclaim, and we're selling more books than we thought we would sell. And um, if I want to go to publish with Random House next week, I can. I'm not. And it's all good so far. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned Octavia Butler's poem, and so I'm really interested in how she influences your work. Yeah. How, how she affects you in general. Oh, goodness. Um, I love that question. So that's a great writer question, you know, because because, you know, the kind of writer, like, people, besides being a black writer, people would call me a literary fiction writer, right? They, they have all these names for writers. Like, I'm a literary fiction writer. Literary fiction doesn't sell. So when this woman back here who just left was talking about urban lit, like, urban lit titles sell a lot. Literary fiction just doesn't sell, whether it's black writer or whatever. Um, and, 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 and urban fiction and horror and time, you know, and fantasy, all of that is, 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 is tossed under the rubric or the genre of um, genre. It's called genre fiction. I'm not one of these writers who thinks genre fiction is bad. I don't think the urban lit fiction is necessarily bad. I mean, I think there's varying degrees. There's some really bad urban lit and there's some great urban lit. What I love about Octavia Butler is that she was able to write snugly, I feel like, snugly at home in the science fiction genre and, 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 and literally like force the genre to submit to her questions. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, she, like the genre, like, the, like genre, the point about genres is they're not supposed to bend, right? They're, like, that's, that, that's, that's, what, that's what we call them, the genre. And if they bend too much, people are like, oh, it's not that anymore. So she took a genre that necessarily, I think is a wonderful genre, but it wasn't supposed to bend that way. And she, and she bent it to ask massive questions, I think, about, like, you know, human nature, definitely Americanness, and black Americanness particularly. And uh, for someone like me, who, you know, in my fiction, I'm, like, so obsessed with, like, the what if, like, so obsessed with the what if and how that ties into gender and racial specificity and whatnot. That's the only model. I ain't gonna find, like, that's the only model for, for in, terms of, in terms of shape, right? Like, I think, as I said earlier, I think Morrison is doing some things with sentences that I, that I just, 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 like, magic. Baldwin is doing some things with sentences that are just magic. But in terms of form... And people diss Octavia Butler because they something. I mean, you know, if you look at the criticism of her back in the day, people were saying she wasn't doing it right. Whatever, like you know, I, I feel like she was doing it right, you know. And people in that genre didn't necessarily even accept her, right? And then like you know, the black writers, quote unquote, like the black lit writers didn't accept her either. So she again, she like just bent. She made the, she made her she made her art bend, and it was the like Kindred and Parable to Soul were the first novels that I read by anybody that I was just like. Damn. I read, you know, I spent my whole life, I had to read. But I never finished a book, and I was like, and the damn for me was like, you could do that? Like, you could do that? You know what I'm saying? Like, I didn't know you could do that. 
I know you could talk about us, but I didn't know you could talk about us in that form. And so, you know, you see, you see people doing this a lot in music too, but like we don't see it much in lit. So for me, it's just it, she just showed me what was possible, and that. And so again, to go back to the other story, when I wanted to do a time travel time travel element in this book initially, in this meta in this meta fictive way, so it's a book within a book. The first thing that the editor said was like, black people aren't going to want to read that. Black people aren't going to want to read a book within a book where, where the book within the book people go back. You know, people, pe- these, this is not, you don't have the David Foster Wallace crowd. That's what the people told me. That's what they told me. You ain't got that crowd. You don't got people. Like, they were like, this is a hard, and even my editor now, who I adore, was like, that's a hard, that's going to be a hard book to read. Right? She, he's like, I get all the things you're doing, but people aren't going to get it till years later if they get it at all. So, you know, I got a job. Okay, I'm going to try. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That's how I feel. But so that's, that's the way I... T- and, and, and what I love now is that you have like this, this newer community of writers, and it's primarily black women, who will not let Octavia... Not just Octavia Butler's work die, they won't let Octavia Butler's life die because she's the, she's the rare black writer whose work like really kind of uh, overshadowed her life. So we don't, you know, people don't really know much about her life. But now, you know, I've got a lot of friends who are really trying to bring back you know, do documentaries, write biographies, and, and, and just really push. And so, you know, like, I think writers, just like most people, are stupid. And when I wrote this book, you know, I, I hope, I, in my mind, I hoped Octavia Butler could finish it, and she would be like, that's okay. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's all I would want her to do. That's all right, right there. That's okay. She didn't have to be like, good, it's brilliant, blah, blah, blah. Like, that's, that's pretty good, you know? So, so for me, she's, she's, in terms of form, she's the one. Any other questions or comments? Yeah. Oh, sorry, you had one more. She had one more. I actually have a follow-up. Okay. So you mentioned um, repeatedly the idea of what if. Yeah. So, so what is your what if point on the vision? So, so there are a number of what ifs, but from the, 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 the primary what if that I started the book is like, you know, what if there were four or five black kids stuck in a hole in central Mississippi? Like, what, and, and they were tired. What, what if they were? What if they decided to get there? Okay, so if the what if there, like, how do you get them there? Right? Like, what if? Um... The second thing, the second, there's a lot of what if. The second what if for me is, what if in this virtual world, um, a black boy becomes like this internet sensation, but he's not around to experience it? Do you see what I'm saying? Like how, like how, like what if? How, well, so then you have to be like, well, why is he around and not experience it? Well, you have to send him somewhere for where you have to take away your cell phone. You have to send him somewhere for where the internet and technology aren't like mad pervasive, right? So that, that, that's the second what if. The other, another what if is like, you know, what if there's a hole in the ground that can send you to three different places, 1965, 1964, 1985, and 2013. What if there's a hole in the ground and there, were, and there, were, and there was uh, this boy who's in love with this, love with this girl actually followed her in the hole? Like, what if that happened? You know, those are the big what ifs. Um, the smaller, I mean, the kind of minute what ifs that only I care about are like, you know, what if one city is right in the other city? You know, that's kind of stuff I don't, very few people talk about with this book, but what if, you know, which city is writing which city is kind of like writerly what if that I'm interested in. You sound like a writer. Yeah? Maybe? Maybe. Okay. <laughs> okay. Oh. Now, nope. I think we should uh, leave some time for, first, you know, for conversation and and signing and so let's say another Baltimore, thank you. Baltimore, thank you. (laughs) All right, thank you. I just want to say thank you very much again.